Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zoza. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Bumgard and Figili Lingwati. In our top stories and our Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, wife of Lesotho's Prime Minister-elect, has been shot dead. South Sudan's warring sides urged to revive collapsed peace agreement and ILO urges African countries to step up efforts to tackle human trafficking. In economics news, South Africa's business confidence falls deeper into negative territory and in sports news, Pakistan beat England to reach Champions Trophy final. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. The estranged wife of Lesotho's Prime Minister-elect Tom Tabane Dipulelo Tabane has been shot dead just hours ahead of his inauguration. Dipulelo Tabane and her husband were locked in a bitter divorce battle during his first term as Premier involving benefits to her. She was allegedly seen as a threat to Tom Tabane and his current wife, who are married by customary law, as they prepare to return to the State House. Ndakwanangatane reports. Residents of Hamasana, just outside the capital Maseru, say Dipulelo was first attacked on Monday night, but her housekeeper called for help and her attackers fled. But as she was driving home on Wednesday afternoon, unknown gunmen opened fire on her and a friend. The two women were rushed to the Queen Mamuhato Hospital, where Dipulelo was allegedly declared dead on arrival, while her friend, Juan Tato Sibulla, was treated for gun wounds and was still fighting for her life by midnight. The Tabani family later confirmed that Dipulelo had died. Sarah facilitator Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has appealed for calm and given his assurance that he will travel to Lesotho for Tabani's inauguration on Friday. The International Criminal Court has called for the arrest and surrender of Sayyaf al-Islam Gaddafi, son of the deposed late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. In a statement issued by the court's prosecutor Fatal bin Souda, she also called for the arrest and surrender of the former head of Internal Security Agency of Libya al-Tuhami Muhammad Khalid. Gaddafi was reportedly released on Friday from the prison in the town of Zentan, where he was being held by the Abu Bakr al-Sadiq Brigade. The international police organization has circulated international alerts to their counterparts around the world, also known as red notices, for Gaddafi and Muhammad Khalid. The United Nations has documented dozens of cases of serious child abuse, including rape and kidnap in five days of violence by Congolese militias. The UN's mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUSCO, says it recorded 62 cases of serious child abuse, 
by armed groups in the east of the country and by followers of slain militia leader Kamuinen Sapu in the country's center between the 5th and 9th of June. Last week, UN Children's Charity UNICEF estimated that more than 150,000 children were either partially or completely unable to attend school because of the fighting in the Kasai. Parents are being advised to keep school children home and workers are urged to delay their journeys as a Texas strike causes mayhem on highways all over Gauteng province in South Africa. More than 10 taxis have been impounded for blocking the N1 highway between Johannesburg and the capital Pretoria as traffic officers try to clear it. Some commuters, especially in Pretoria, have been forced out of buses. Gunshots were fired in the area where the N1 passes near the Mall of Africa north of Johannesburg. Taxi operators are protesting over financing the vehicles and other issues. Meanwhile, the National Taxi Council, Santago, says they did not give any directive for taxi drivers to close major highways in Gauteng province. Santago COO Tulani Kwabe says they investigating. Then we've got um, uh, marshals on the ground who will look into that and I will also phone and check what's going on and we'll have to resolve that. But it's not our intention to block the national roads, uh, block other road users and, and affect their affairs. Our intention is to just gather as per our application at the um, place where we said we would gather and then speak to the taxi um, operators and then take it from there. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Deadly attacks on people across Nigeria by terrorists marauding as headsmen are continuing. These headsmen are of Fulani extraction who live a close-knitted lifestyle bound by a common religion, Islam, language for Fude and Hawusa vocation and cattle heading. Their domain is predominantly the northeastern enclave of Nigeria, where they roam freely with their animals seeking pastures where they may graze. Channel Africa's correspondent in Lagos Collins at Tohengbe reports. Their campaign of violence came to the fore and became a regular occurrence in 2015, shortly after the commencement of the administration of President Muhammad Buhari. It grew to alarming proportion in the southern part of Nigeria just as the military was claiming victory over Boko Haram insurgents in the northeast, a group which has terrorized Nigeria for about 15 years now. The common features is herding cattle into people's farms, mostly at night, destroying their crops, and when they are challenged, the headsmen regroup and carry out sudden attack on the people at hours when they are relaxed after the hardest labor in the farms, targeting young men and seizing and raping their women. They also kidnap at random and are believed to be responsible for a number of robbery incidents on major highways in different parts of the country. Their activities have led to the enactment of anti-grazing law which prescribes five years jail time for offenders and the death penalties for those who are found guilty of murder in Benue State and in Ekiti State. In addition to jail terms, they could also forfeit their cattle to the people. 
As the problem lingers, it was suggested that states should carve out portions of their forests as grazing reserves by law. Like many other states, particularly south and central zones of Nigeria, such law would not be welcome. Samuel Autumn, governor of Benue State, says there is no land in his state to meet the needs of the headsmen. I have repeatedly said, for those who argue that we should carve out grazing routes and grazing exams, I have told them it is impossible. At least in many states, we should look at what other countries are doing. What is obtainable for herdsmen and their cattle is ranches. In a similar move, the Akiti governor Ayofayoshe says the deeds of the herdsmen will be checked. And you arrest them daily because you have weapons. Where are they finding this AK-47? Who is behind it? Everybody, as responsible leaders, must take steps to curtail excesses of anybody that wants to take the lives of your people. I was elected governor to protect life and property. And I make it very clear to you, if you are hiding under Katuriari to take lives of my people, to sleep with their daughters, to sleep with their wives, to take their wives by force, because they know you can come in the night and harass them. You allow farmers to leave their farms at six. You now go about rearing cartoons over their farmlands to destroy their means of livelihood. That will not work. These killings have been interpreted by some as extension of the terror attack by Boko Haram going by the operational styles. Others believe that there is a deliberate program of ethnic cleansing which is directed towards Christians considering the fact that non-Muslims have suffered the most while others yet think there is undeclared attempt to Islamize Nigeria by unknown group which is believed to be receiving support from outside Nigeria. With attack on churches including attempts to gag Christian clerics like Pastor Suleiman, using government apparatus for advocating self-defense and protection against herdsmen, the delay by the federal government to respond to the distress called by victims of herdsmen attack. Many people have now decided to fight back and defend their territories against the invading army of occupation from northern Nigeria. Archbishop Chukuma of Enugun State says, enough is enough. No full animal will be allowed anymore to wreck us anywhere, anyhow. We are going to make sure we realize our youth. No more cow coming to the town is anymore. All other Christians, cultural groups should stand up and rise up against this. This is the only language people understand. This is another war that they are breeding. And we don't want it in this democracy. If you don't want peace, you shall march force with force. There's a serious debate over the oneness of Nigeria because of the issues of headsmen, despite reassurance by government and with the feeling of a possible fragmentation of the country. Major General Fatai Ali, Director of Administration in the Nigerian Army Headquarters, says President Buhari's orders to the army on the headsmen will be carried out with all diligence. I want to also assure that whoever is involved in this killing will be brought to book and tried in line with the law of the land. We are calling on all parties who are interested in peace to shoot their swords and ensure that they do not cause unnecessary casualties. The law of the land must prevail. Innocent people should not be attacked. Fulani herdsmen have wreaked havoc on the people of Southern Kaduna and Benue states without let. People wake up at midnight or in the wee hours of the morning to discover that their kinsmen have been hacked to death by cattle rearers who wave dangerous weapons visibly without being challenged by law enforcement agents. Some herdsmen have been arrested and presented to the public with the deployment of anti-riot policemen in some areas and in some cases 
soldiers to defend affected communities. Some confess to be members of Boko Haram and continues to sack students from classroom and roam the streets of major cities with their animals, including cities like Abuja, Port Harcourt, and Lagos, amongst others, despite public outcry. Could it be that these men are on a mission for terror groups or are set to force Nigeria into a renegotiation of its federalism? Time will tell. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Colin Satohengwe for Channel Africa News. The Basutu people are mourning the loss of their first lady, Dibulelo Tabani, this morning. A strange wife of Prime Minister-elect Tom Tabani was shot dead yesterday and died in hospital. Tabane was just hours from being inaugurated as Lesotho's prime minister after winning the country's elections earlier this month. Lesotho plunged into a political crisis following a failed coup attempt in 2014, prompting Tabane to flee to South Africa, saying he feared for his life. He then returned home early this year with two other opposition leaders vowing to win back power. For more on this, we are now joined on the line from Lesotho by our reporter Ntakwana Ngadane. Good morning, Takwana, and thank you so much for joining us on this sad day. Exactly what happened, um, what took place yesterday, and uh, you know what are the effects of that action where we have seen um, the First Lady, the Bulelo Tabane, having died? Good morning, Lulu. From what we understand from the residents of Masana, where the incident happened, apparently this started as far back as Monday, when there was an attempt on the house of Dipule Lotabani, where she's currently staying, but that was averted when her helper apparently screamed for help, and nearby people then came and the attackers, or would-be attackers, then fled. But apparently then yesterday, as she was driving towards her house, and now this is a virgin now confirmed by police, uh, apparently with another lady, then she was shot by unknown people. And then the two of them were taken to the Queen Mamohato Memorial Hospital, where, according to reports, Dipolelo arrived at the hospital already late, but the other lady, by midnight yesterday when we were at the hospital, she was still being treated apparently in a critical condition. Now, in terms of reactions, Lulu, it is shock right through Lesotho because as you understand, it is just a few hours away from Tom Tabani's inauguration here in Lesotho. And although this is his estranged wife, he was, she was the second wife, and he had been married uh, prior to her, and uh, met, well, he then subsequently married traditionally following her, and even though they are still married civilly, um, it is a shock throughout Lesotho. Lulu? Now, Ntakwane, she was a political, she was also involved in politics from what the reports are saying coming through. Do we have any idea of exactly what happened? Was this politically motivated or was, can it be called um, a, an assassination? Exactly how, what should this be um, labeled as? Well, at this point in time, Lulu, we don't know because police are still investigating this particular incident, but people are giving it their connotations and particularly because Dipulelo has a history with the incoming Prime Minister, Tom Tabani. As I say, they were going through a divorce, quite a protracted one. He filed for divorce in July 2012. And then when he was Prime Minister from 2012 to 2015, she filed a countersuit. 
in which she was saying that while she remained his wife before they were divorced, she wanted to be recognized as the official first lady. And this was despite the fact that Tabani at the time was already living with another partner that he then uh, married, uh, that is Diabilo Ramohudu, who became Maizaya Tabani, but he married her traditionally, as I pointed out. But uh, that protracted battle in which she went to the court demanding that she be recognized as the first lady, she eventually won. The court ruled in her favor. Now, following that, uh, he was uh, ousted out of power, as you remember, in 2015 after the elections, and therefore he was no longer prime minister, which meant that whatever a court uh, decision had come out of that uh, bid was no longer applicable. But with him coming back into power, some were now speculating that this may be uh, associated with the fact that some may not have wanted her to be a factor in him coming back to power with another wife that he married traditionally. But of course, there's another side to this story, Lulu, and that side is that some are saying this particular government that is outgoing may perhaps also have supporters that would want uh, the situation to not be conducive for the new government of Tabane to come into power. So supporters on both sides may be responsible, not necessarily the leaders, or whatever it is that the, that, that the leaders may have done or said in order for those supporters who may feel that they want to take the law into their own hands. But at this point in time, as I say, all of this is mere speculation, and we cannot say which one of these stories is true, or if indeed any one of them is true, or if this is just a crime. Lulu? Mm. Now, Ntakwana, let's talk about, let's move on to um, the inauguration, which is supposed to take place. What exactly happens there? Any reaction from the incoming government um, with regards to Prime Minister-elect's inauguration? Well, we understand that we are expecting, the, especially the Obasutu Convention, to release a statement and perhaps their partners also in government. But also I think Basutu will be looking to hear what the outgoing government, the Prime Minister, uh, Bagadi Tamusisidi, has to say about this incident, uh, perhaps to even distance uh, the government from it or for both sides to distance themselves from this particular incident. But we have already heard from the spokesperson of Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, who's SADC facilitator, that uh, he has passed his condolences to the family, that he has said that uh, despite what has happened, he is still traveling to Lesotho tomorrow to attend the, the inauguration. And we know that uh, the president of Zambia, Edgar Lungwe, had also confirmed that he's attending the prime minister of Swaziland, Lucy uh, Sotland confirm that he's also attending. So we expect to hear, um, you know, that uh, they are still coming as the facilitator has given the assurance that uh, the inauguration should still continue. Now, Ntakwane, um, you know, this is a developing story that we definitely have to watch as uh, time progresses and how it will affect, um, uh, you know, obviously the inauguration has to continue, but, uh, you know, the Basutu people after all of this and all this trouble and finally and this happens. So um, it is definitely a story to, to watch as time goes on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lou. That was our reporter in Lesotho in Maseru in Takwanangatana giving us an update on uh, the killing of uh, Prime Minister-elect's wife, uh, Dipulelo Tabane. 
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mvalerwa Kina Miriam Mlopo. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika Mu África. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now staying with Lesotho, Lesotho's newly elected government must act swiftly to ensure accountability for past human rights violations and end the spike in abuses recorded in recent years. This is according to Amnesty International. This follows after the Mountain Kingdom held an election on June the 3rd in 2017 after former Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi lost a vote of no confidence in Parliament on the 1st of March in 2017. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Southern Africa researcher at Amnesty International, Shireen Mukadam. Shireen, thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, before we go into um, our discussion, just what happened yesterday in Lesotho with the Prime Minister Alexa wife having been shot dead yesterday, what's your take on this as Amnesty International, especially with the call that you have made as Amnesty International. Good morning, Lulu. Um, yes, indeed, we believe that the the murder of um, Prime Minister Thomas Tabani's um, ex-wife Dipolelo Tabani yesterday really underscores the the criminal justice failures in Lesotho and highlights the impunity of human rights violations. Um, the 25th of June this year will mark two years since the killing of um, Mataranku Mahal. And two years after his killing, um, the perpetrators are scot-free while the family of Mr. Mahal are still waiting for justice. Now, how do you see the possibility of this uh, with such a fragile political situation? Um, Prime Minister-elect Tom Tabane is being inaugurated tomorrow. And, uh, you know, with this report uh, that has been released, um, what what do you see happening going forward? Um, Lulu, Amnesty International has really um, noted that the suit has been characterized by political and security crisis, as you have rightly mentioned which has really resulted in the spike of human rights violations. And since 2014, we've documented patterns of a disturbing pattern of human rights violations committed with absolute impunity in Lesotho. And um, what Amnesty International is calling for is that the new Lesotho authorities will be coming into power tomorrow after the inauguration must really demonstrate a clear break, break from the past and urgently initiate a program of human rights reform. And so the document you're referring to, um, a human rights agenda for the new Lesotho authorities, really um, reflects long-standing calls made by Amnesty International 
to the Lesotho authorities. And what we would like to see is that the new Lesotho government ends the practice of arbitrary arrests and politically motivated prosecutions. We'd also like to see effective measures taken to end the practice of torture and other ill treatment in the country. And the International would like to ensure that the new government um, ensures accountability and justice for victims of human rights violations and abuses, including the killing of Lieutenant General Maparanku Mahao, as I've mentioned, um, and, of course, for um, the killing of Dipolelo Tabani yesterday. Um, we would also like to see the new authorities end attacks on the right to freedom of expression and also to comply with Lesotho's international and regional human rights obligations and commitments. Now, Shireen, has there been any reaction to your call um, to for, for your call to your call um, to the Lesotho government from the outgoing government or from um, the newly elected government that will be taking over? Any reaction from either side? Mm-hmm. No, Lulu. The um, the document that we released, the Human Rights Agenda for the New Lesotho Authorities, was only released yesterday, as you know. Um, and I think it's a very it's a it's a time of great flux in Lesotho with um, the inauguration only happening tomorrow. But Amnesty International will definitely be making direct contact um, with the new Lesotho authorities to um, bring to their attention our human rights agenda for the new Lesotho government. And we will engage, be engaging directly with them um, to ensure that they are aware of the human rights calls that Amnesty International is making to the new Lesotho authorities. And um, we will be holding them accountable to these calls as well. Shireen, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That was Southern Africa researcher at Amnesty International, Shireen Mukadam, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has started a consultative process to look into the establishment of a judicial commission of inquiry into state capture. This was revealed by Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa during his all-reply session in the National Assembly. He also faced questions around gender-based violence and the economy, as Mercedes Percent reports. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says President Zuma as head of state and government has the powers to establish a judicial commission of inquiry in terms of section 85F of the constitution. And he has indicated that he is not opposed to the establishment of a commission of inquiry and as we speak now he is in the process of consulting his legal advisors to find ways of giving effect to this proposal. It is in the interests of all South Africans that the commission should be set up as quickly as possible so that all those who have evidence can present their evidence to a competent body and those allegedly implicated should also have an opportunity to respond to the allegations that are being made against them. On the issue of violence against women and children, Ramaphosa says it should be fought by the entire society, especially men. The country has recently been marred by the brutal killing of women, boys and girls in various parts of the country. 
The deputy president says such violence should be rooted out collectively. The struggle against violence against women cannot be left to government alone or indeed to the public representatives that are in this house. It must be embraced by all South Africans, men in particular, to ensure that we act decisively to act to end this scourge of violence against women and children. He also faced pressing questions on the role of government to root out the human trafficking of girls. National Freedom Party Chief Whip Nlantla Kubisa gave an account of how young girls are allegedly raped, trafficked and sold to other countries for 15,000 rands. Just recently at a place around Fryhead and Ngutu, a certain girl had to escape from a place where there are foreign nationals who take girls into the house and these girls are raped and after that they are trafficked to certain places abroad. And it is alleged that each girl will cost about 15,000. And there is another sketch that is there. The provincial government welfare department has intervened. But what is it that can be done from your side, your deputy president, to prevent such a pandemic, such a sketch as well? In response, Ramaphosa condemned the incident, saying communities have to become active citizens and work with law enforcement officers to stop the trafficking of girls by such perpetrators. That cannot be tolerated, but that information needs to come forward because our law enforcement agencies are on the lookout for perpetrators like those. Those perpetrators belong behind bars. They should not be let loose amongst our people They should not be let loose amongst young girls. They should actually be arrested, prosecuted, and sent to prison. So we call on our people to take action through their various structures in communities and make sure that we act together with our law enforcement agencies and rid our country of this scourge. Ahang parliamentary leader Andris Loyama questioned Ramaphosa's integrity and referred him as President Zuma's arma capsule. The, the brutal truth is you are also losing your integrity. Can you break from the yoke the president has bound you? The president is frog-marching us into a state of hopelessness. Why are you continuing to legitimize, to, to legitimize his failed leadership? Why do you allow the president to slowly to devour the values of the, which are enshrined in our constitution? Continuing to give the future of the country a death sentence. Deputy President, why are you allowing the president to turn you into an Aram scrap cell, Deputy President? The Honorable Deputy President. Madam Speaker, I don't know what the actual question is. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have my Afrikaans dictionary today to remember what an Aram capsule is. All I can say is that I'm not a capsule. Uh, so I'm not an Aram capsule. Uh, and that is the answer that I would be willing to give uh, Honorable Ploama. Thank you very much. That report by Mercedes Percent. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, a suicide car bombing and assault by Al-Shabaab militants on two neighboring restaurants in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, have ended with 18 people killed. The SADC facilitator for Lesotho Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has appealed for calm after the killing of the incoming Prime Minister's estranged wife and the United Nations has documented dozens of cases of serious child abuse including rape and kidnap in five days of violence by Congolese militias. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And military experts as well as politicians and activists have expressed mixed reaction on EGAD's directive that the peace agreement that was signed by President Salva Kiir and his political and military opponent, Reg Macha, should be revived as soon as possible. James Shimangula reports. The directive by the Djibouti-based Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGAD, that the peace agreement that collapsed more than a year ago should be revived has been received by the people of South Sudan with mixed reactions. The collapse of the agreement automatically paved the way for the ethnic fighting now raging in all parts of South Sudan and which President Salva Kiir has failed to stop. The directive was issued in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa where heads of state from seven IGAD member nations met to look for ways of ending the fighting in Africa's newest nation. The man expected to oversee the revival of the implementation of the peace agreement is former Botswana President Festus Mohai, who was appointed by IGAD and approved by the African Union to ensure that the agreement is fully signed to create room for permanent peace. Rajab Mohandi, an expert on political and military issues at the independent South Sudan Network for Democracy, salutes Igad for the directive to revive the agreement, but decries the plight of thousands of people that remain displaced. He wants the people to return to their homes first and warring factions to stop fighting before the peace agreement is revived. We, we have seen people uh, running, getting displaced from their homes, and the main reason is the violence in the country. So with this violence, the implementation of the agreement has not been easy. Even the proposed national dialogue may not move on smoothly, and therefore it is important that uh, people come together and find a peaceful means to be able to resolve this conflict. So when you look at this, you can clearly see that uh, the agreement is not achieving its intended results. So there is need to, as, as Igad actually put it, to find a way to reinvigorate this agreement, to, as people say, resuscitate this agreement to be able to be, uh, deliver on all these commitments. Akwacha Jang, chairman of South Sudan Civil Alliance, one of the country's opposition political parties is of the opinion that the much talked about national dialogue should take place before the revival of the peace agreement. All we need to do, and what we are asking the IGAD countries to do, is to make more pressure on the government and the oppositions to accept the national dialogue so that the people of South Sudan can sit down, negotiate, discuss, and bring a, a love peace that can bring stability uh, and peace in the Republic of South Sudan. 
Betty Sande, coordinator of the South Sudan Women Forum that has been pushing for peace in the country wants the Juba authorities and eager first to look into causes of the ongoing fighting. We need to look at the root causes of these other people who carry arms. Why are they fighting? So that the government should know, okay, these people are fighting because of A, B, C, D, and the government will see with them together and dialogue, since also our president has declared the national dialogue. Before going jumping to elections, we need all these other activities should be conducted, especially those who commit atrocities must face court of law. Like, for example, the peace agreement have given us like the forming of the Commission of Truth-Telling and Reconciliation, which is very important for us. But regardless, apart from that, what we need immediately is a cessation of hostility, ceasefire. Edmond Nyakani, an independent expert on political issues in South Sudan, wants the peace agreement to be revived as soon as possible because, as he says, it is about to expire since it was signed. Expiration of the agreement is coming too close, and I think they need to come with a practical and realistic timeline and also define milestones that are more practical and implementable to rescue this country because the biggest situation we are facing in South Sudan is that absence of a political will. Peter Mayen of South Sudan's Liberal Party, another opposition party in South Sudan, welcomes the IGAD directive but points out that We welcome the IGAD communicate that is extremely important uh, through the given forums so that uh, the parties are pressured to bow down and implement the peace agreements and peace returns to South Sudan. Ajang Bioy, Secretary General of the United Sudan African Party's civil rights group, is suggesting that a national forum should be held in the country before IGAD's directive is put in place. One of the reasons why such a forum will be important is that the period for implementation of the process of the agreement has not really uh, been started at the right uh, period. So adjusting the timelines, I think, will be useful to both parties. Justin Shoro, another independent South Sudan political and military analyst, contends that since South Sudan has now dozens of rebel groups, it may be complicated to revive the peace agreement. They may complicate things more than this. Because you have seen there are a lot of different rebel groups emerging, coming up, and complicating the whole history of the peace agreement. What we are after is to see to it that the agreement which was signed in Addis by the two groups must be implemented in spirit and latter. That was Justin Soro, one of South Sudan political and military experts expressing his views like the others who have expressed mixed views on the Intergovernmental Authority and the Development IGAT's directive that the peace agreement that was signed more than a year ago should be revived as quick as possible. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The International Labour Organization, ILO, has urged African countries to come up with laws that deal with social media, the main tool used for human trafficking. During parliamentary human rights hearing in Harare, ILO said cases of human trafficking are on the increase in Africa, with estimates saying the lucrative illegal business generate 150 billion U.S. dollar profit annually in the world. Simon Machema reports from Harare. As much as the social media could have made life easy, instantly availing information to the world, the tools could be used for illegal businesses such as human trafficking. 
during a parliamentary hearing on Monday, Narare aimed at obtaining oral evidence regarding increased cases of human trafficking in Zimbabwe and beyond. International labor organization urged countries on the continent to strengthen laws against use of social media to commit crimes. Social media is now very powerful in aggravating or alleviating human trafficking trends in the world, experts revealed. While it, it was easy decades ago to tell through newspaper adverts a human trafficking offense was being committed, the social media has taken over and made it so secret. Due to poverty and access to social media posts, more people on the continent are now finding it easy to link up with traffickers and easily lured into accepting job offers mainly in the Gulf states. Immigrants in the United Arab Emirates, Qatar and Kuwait account to the majority of those trafficked from Africa, with Kuwait, a country with a population of 1.3 million, having 600,000 domestic workers. Adolphus Chinomwe, senior program officer at International Labor Organization, revealed. With globalization now, you no longer apply for a job you know, to a company. You apply for a job in an exchange on, on, on WhatsApp, you know, which is very informal, and then you are shown all things that are nice, that are good, that you think that, okay, let me go there. And uh, when you fa- go there, you, you will finally get to where you wanted to go you find that I think you know, things are not as rose as they are. Chinomwe said human trafficking is a huge income generating entity in the world, hence the abuse. If I can buy 10 maids from Zimbabwe at a cost of $50,000, I lend them in Kuwait, I give them to 10 households, and I say to the uh, uh, master or the owner of the house, you pay me $2,000 a month. Well, this is the figures that you hear. And some of these uh, families are richer. This is the Gulf states. This is where you find your oil people. So, yes, they can afford $2,000. And say, yes, my maid will work 22 hours, my friend. This is about hard working from Zimbabwe. For one month, I'll have uh, $20,000. Uh, $20, After a year, I have $240,000. When this household no longer needs this maid, I can sell her to another trafficker. Maybe who wants to use them. This is what is happening now. The ILO representative urged countries to come up with new anti-human trafficking laws. We have an anti-trafficking law now, but I think it needs to be strengthened more, like I said, that doesn't criminalize the very act of trafficking, but some of the laws that I think the way we've been responding is that before this law, we were actually criminalizing criminal elements within the process of trafficking, which could be abduction, or I, I don't know, maybe sexual abuse or harassment or something along those lines. So there are some gaps. And like I said, also on recruitment agencies, there's a gap in that no, there isn't a strong application of the law or monitoring or enforcement of the law as it relates to, to recruitment agencies. At least 200 Zimbabwean women were reported in 2016 as having been turned into sex slaves after having been lowered into applying for jobs in Kuwait. Generally, I think we can also describe Zimbabwe as a transit destination uh, a country and a source country in terms of uh, international migrants. Uh, I wouldn't want to hazard an estimation of how many Zimbabweans are in the diaspora. I think a lot of numbers have been thrown, but I think we know significant numbers. I think if you travel in the region, 
at least as the ILO office in Harare we cover Namibia, every time I go to Namibia, I meet more people from my class or my streams from the university who are medical doctors. And I'm asking, so you guys tell me, how many are you? And I'm actually thinking that, I remember reading a story in one of the newspapers that uh, there was actually now political pressure for the government to act on the numbers of Zimbabweans in the medical sector in Namibia. According to the ILO, some people involved in the human trafficking scam prefer returning to the countries where they are abused due to high unemployment rates in their own countries. We were then preparing to look at, say, okay, how do you stop people from migrating? Maybe you give them the opportunity here. So we're also prepared to work with the, uh, on a project with the women on, on also to see how we could get them into some form of economic activities to empower them. But uh, as we heard, like I said before, <laughs> we heard that some of them went back. Maybe the opportunities here are not as good as uh, <laughs> what, we, what they, they get there. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Our economics update up next with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Lulu. The third African Union Ministers of Trade meeting begins in Niamey, Niger. It will be officially opened by the President of Niger, Mohamedou Isafou. The meeting will consider the progress made in CFTA negotiations, preparations for the 11th World Trade Organization and African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister, Rob Davies, says his country is committed to a coordinated strategy to boost intra-Africa trade. South Africa's Parliament's Standing Committee on Public Accounts has expressed outrage that all the cases of corruption finalised by the Anti-Corruption Task Team have been through plea bargaining. The committee says this fuels assumptions that government is soft and also losing the war on corruption. The task team briefed the committee on pending cases as well as the comprehensive report on criminal asset recovery account. It says there's a couple of hundreds that is dealing with and more than 40 cases have been finalized through plea bargaining. Scopa chairperson Temba Godi. Our problem or issue is plea bargaining because if out of 42 finalized cases, 41 have been finalized through plea bargaining, it means there is no case that was prosecuted at the end. All of them were negotiated sentences. So the outrage that we expressed is actually an outrage against plea bargaining. Not so much that uh, the courts had made, had, been, had become lenient on offenders. South Africa's Human Settlements Minister Lindiwe Sisulu's called for an urgent investigation into banks that are allegedly auctioning RDP houses to settle short-term loans. 
Sisulu has slammed the move by the banks, saying there are other means of settling these debts without resorting to auctioning houses that were paid for with taxpayers' money. The minister's spokesperson, Ndivuyo Mabaya. So the minister has asked for a meeting with the banks to discuss this matter and also to propose some of the ways that we can deal with it. And we want to engage also the credit regulator. We want to engage the drafters of legislation. If it means we must pass a law, we will have to pass a law because the government is working backwards. I mean, we're giving people who are destitute houses. They're being taken by banks. Some of them being auctioned for 5000 10000 to settle small debts. The British government says it will step up the level of financial support it provides, this in a bid to help the economy as the country leaves the European Union. Britain is due to begin talks with the EU next week. Britain's Finance Minister Philip Hammond will set out how his government intends to provide its own support for projects that run beyond the 2019 deadline. And France's state-controlled power utility is being given a strike warning. According to the EDF website, the strike is scheduled to begin next week. EDF, however, did not provide any further details about the strike. Workers in the French gas and electricity sector organized weekly strikes earlier this year to protest against a wage freeze in the sector. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the rand is trading at 12 rand 64 to the dollar, at 10.11 Botswana Pula and 9.15 Zambian Kwacha. It's also trading at 0.78 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,264 and platinum at $936 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $47.10 a barrel. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. South African rugby. Union has called a special general meeting for next month to confirm the four South African entrants to a revised Super Rugby competition from 2018. The meeting will take place in Cape Town on the 7th of July. The general meeting has the constitutional responsibility for determining the SA teams to participate in Super Rugby. Jury Roo, CEO of South African Rugby, says the special general meeting would decide on a proposal from the Executive Council, which in turn would have received a recommendation on the participants from the Franchise Committee, whose membership is representatives of the Vodacom Super Rugby teams. The proposal will also be debated by the non-franchise committee, comprising the CEOs of the 14 provincial rugby unions, before reaching the special general meeting. And Springbok fly half Elton Yankees admits that team performances are more important than individual achievements ahead of the second Castle Lager incoming test against France in Durban on Saturday. The 26-year-old enjoyed one of his better outings in national colours when South Africa opened the three-match series against France with a 37-14 victory in Pretoria last weekend. 
now. The Bucks are preparing for the next game in Durban where Yankees will be expected to play an equally important role as they try to seal the series. However, the Lions number 10 is remaining grounded ahead of the game. For me, it's all about the team. I think um, team fundamentals, um, especially when we fixed it after last year, um, the guys are really buying into the way we want to play and taking personal responsibility of their own job as well. So that's the key for me is to take responsibility of my own jo- job and then just making sure that I'll be the game manager on the field, um, communicating well. And yeah, the force is obviously um, laying the good platform f- to get quick ball for me and Ross. Yankees believes that he's being helped by the fact that there are so many Lion players in the team, including the captain Warren Whiteley. Obviously, it, it comes and benefit, uh, especially with us knowing each other and obviously speaking the same language. But we've got leaders in the team. Um, we've got two, five, and then obviously at the backfield with Bubus as well. So we're communicating quite well, so it makes it easier on the field. So the guys are calm and they know exactly what to do, what call is made. So it makes it just easier. I think obviously with rugby you've got a spinal that's between the lineouts, the hookers and the locks and obviously at the backfield with the 15 and then 10 and 9 and 10 as decision makers but I see it as everybody should take responsibility, getting yourself in position, communicating well um, so everybody's got that role and accountability amongst us so that's going to be that's going to be important and we can only grow and get better. In golf news, every year, the winner of the Masters enters the U.S. Open as the only golfer with a chance to complete the calendar year Grand Slam, and Sergio Garcia took his turn facing the prospect at Erin Hill. The calendar year slam of golf's major championships has not been achieved for 87 years since Bobby Jones swept top events of this day by winning the 1930 U.S. Open, British Open, U.S. Amateur and British Amateur. Tiger Woods accomplished the next best thing by holding all four of the major titles at once after claiming the U.S. Open, British Open, PGA Championship in 2000 and capping off the monopoly by adding the 2001 Masters to complete a Tiger Slam. The year's second major begins today. I guess uh, the guy that wins the Masters uh, every year has the, the potential of doing that. Uh, it is something nice to, uh, to have the possibility of doing, but... Uh, uh, we all know how difficult it is, so uh, I, I just want to go one one little term at a time and give my best uh, this week, and you know, hopefully uh, by Sunday night we can keep having that talk. Rory McIlroy spoke to Garcia on the course as the two worked out the best way to play the links, the style layout that comes in at a formidable 7,800 yards. McElroy is coming back from a rib injury, which he insists will not hamper his play, although he admits to limited practice this week. Obviously, I haven't had many tournament rounds under my belt, but at the same time, I'm coming in fresh to this part of the season. And, you know, as I said, um, added a couple of events to the schedule and, and you know, want to play a lot over the summer and um, try to make up some ground on the, on the rest of the guys. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, wife of Lesotho's prime minister-elect has been shot dead. South Sudan's warring sides urge to revive collapsed peace agreement and ILO urges African countries to step up efforts to tackle human trafficking. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa is Dennis Mpale with a song titled Paying My Bills.